I have the incredible pleasure of inviting Emily Sander back. She was our guest back in February, and we talked about her book, um, Hacking Executive Leadership. And I, I, Emily, this is one of the most practical books I've read in a long time. You know, I read a lot of stuff that's conceptual, and 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 yet um, at the end of every chapter, you you give us a follow-up and you ask questions. And then at the end of the book, you have a whole list of questions and ideas, um, action. Uh, and, and when we talked about this last time, you said um, hacking is not, let me see if I get this right. Hacking is not trying to find a shortcut. It is what, tell us what, what you said hacking was. Yeah, exactly. It's it's going into your code, so to speak. So the visual I always have is the movie Matrix and Neo, how he can see his world and he can see what it's made up of and he can hack into that. So in that same way, we all can hack into the code of our leadership and of our lives. And just because something is presented to us doesn't mean that's the way it is. We can make that what we want um, or or build or create what we want it to be. And so that's what I mean by hacking. You can really shape your leadership, shape your leadership style, shape the person that you are and how you interact with other people. Well, I just, for people who didn't listen to the first episode, I want to, I'm going to read the tagline. I love this tagline from your book. Um, it's called Hacking Executive Leadership. But then the tagline is, or the, the subtitle is how to go from or go from insecure, indecisive and overloaded to confident, influential and effective. And I don't know of anybody who gets themselves into the position of being a leader. And, and that can mean anything that can mean in a, you know, a huge corporation, a small business, a nonprofit, and, you know, even on a committee, I, I, you know, or any, if you, if you're in the world, you're called on, I believe, to be a leader in some way. You know, if you're whether you're, you know, leading a, a mom group of, of a play group or you're leading, you know, Nabisca or General Foods, whatever it is, you're you are given the opportunity to be a leader at some point. So we we talked to Emily back on February 22nd, and I'm going to suggest to everybody that they go back and take a look. Um, we. We entitled that podcast episode Hacking Leadership and Gratitude because we do gratitude very well on this podcast. And Emily is really an expert on hacking leadership. And I just want to read a few gems. I went back and listened to the podcast again in the last couple of days. And I'm just going to give you give our listeners a few gems because I really want to entice everyone to go back and listen to that one either before or after they listen to this one. But um, some of the things that Emily said is that comparison is the thief of joy. Um, looking at failure as an old friend who's actually going to help you is a great strategy. Um, failure is a reflection of something that happened. It doesn't define who you are. Look for the smallest win, which is also in the book. Learn to swizzle. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You've got to read the book and listen to the podcast. And every time you say no, you buy freedom for yourself. And it was good for me to listen to that again because I'm really, um, it's something I struggle with. I think it's worldwide, but especially for people who consider themselves givers, you you don't have to give everybody yourself away. You can choose. <laughs> and, and so please... 
take, go back and take a look at that podcast because Emily is really good at dissecting leadership and life and success and, and ways to become your most effective best self. But I, before we begin the new piece, which is the second part of the book, Emily, tell us anything that's new in your life, um, something ex excited, exciting that's happened since we last talked. Yeah, I mean, you and I were talking just before we recorded, and I was just saying I've been very grateful and blessed to have some new coaching clients uh, come into my life, and it's it's always so exciting to meet just, I get to meet interesting, dynamic, driven people from all walks of, of life from the business world, but people I never would have met under different circumstances, and so I always reflect on, oh my gosh, I get to work with these types of people. So um, that's just a surge of encouragement and motivation whenever that happens. And then just because it was recent, I was talking to my nephew and he's a pilot and he just got this new license or new test and he, and he passed it and he was trying to tell me about it. And I was like, Oliver, like, what exactly does this mean? And he eventually said, Aunt M, it means I can fly big ass planes. And he was so happy and he was so happy in that like boy, like giddy boy, you know, dude kind of way. And I was just like, oh, I remember this kid playing with toy planes and now this man is is flying them. And I was just really grateful of, um, you know, him passing the test and being able to share that moment and just <laughs> hearing him say, I get to fly big ass planes. <laughs> so you told a story about that nephew in your book. It was one of the stories you used to illustrate a point. I'd love for you to to let our listeners know what the story is about that crazy nephew. I did. Yes, that's a good, good memory. So uh, my adventurous nephew, Oliver, he knew he wanted to be a pilot. He's known that from a, from a, his little kid and he knew he wanted to go to Alaska. And so without having a job or having a place to stay, he drove up there and he made a way for himself and he got into the company he wanted to and he got into the program he wanted to just by kind of sheer willpower and being in the right place in the right time, putting himself in the right place at the right time. So, um, and now he has uh, done well in that role and has got enough hours to take this big certification and exam. And now he can fly bigger planes or big ass planes. So <laughs> I love that. that. I love that story. I, 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 I know I sound like gushing fangirl, but I just want to tell people if you, First of all, you wrote a you wrote a fun book. It's not usually leadership books are not fun to read, but it was a fun book to read. You use really great illustrations. And I, and before we jump into talking about part two, I I want I want to read our listeners the last paragraph in your book because I think this is is really important. And Emily says, you can become the leader you want to be. You can step up and rise to the occasion. Do the work. Because small wins add up faster than you think. Time will pass anyway. Who do you want to be in a week, a month, in a year? Start today. It will be worth it. I, I think that we tend to forget that piece. Time is going to pass anyway. Um, it's You're going to get to you know whatever your next stage is. I'm going to get to 62 anyway. Why not? be between now and then exactly who I want to be. Start with whatever it is that your dream is and start developing the skills that'll get you where you want to be. So Emily, I want to jump into part two, which is all you call it business lessons and applications. And you, you did, I think it's three chapters there where you talk about the nuts and bolts of putting 
to gather the pieces that we learned in the first half. And in, in chapter five, you talked about decision-making and, and how sometimes decisions aren't clear cut. And you say, sometimes you just have to pick the least bad option. Talk, talk to me about leadership and decision-making. Sure. So the context of that statement was oftentimes business leaders, and I'm sure other leaders, they don't have a clear cut decision. It's not like the easy decisions come across their desk. It's the really complex, hard ones where you're going to make one call and a group of people are going to be unhappy or you're going to put this at risk. And so understanding that that is going to be a reality is probably step one, just accepting, hey, I'm going to have to make really tough decisions on limited information with limited time. And that's just something I'm going to need to get used to. The second thing to keep in mind is decision making is a skill. It's a skill that you can develop like anything else. So looking at it from that frame of mind is helpful as well. But yes, uh, I think, you know, you think of a president of a company or a president of a country, by the time a problem, an issue or a decision comes across their desk, 12 really smart people have tried to solve that before him or her. And so by the time it gets to you, you have a really tough decision. And sometimes it is which one of these is the least bad choice I can make. Wow, that's so interesting because I, it, as the board chair of the Cancer Foundation, we're in the midst of making some decisions. And it's true. Other people have already looked at them. And now we're at the point where I have to think, what, what, I'm, you know, and on occasion... I, I am what you describe. I, I mean, I think of it, you don't use these words, but I'm sort of a knee jerk decision maker. And I think it's not just that that's my personality. I mean, it's sort of like when the problem presents itself or, you know, like when I have a fight with my husband or something, I want it to be resolved in the first 30 seconds. And he, he wants to mull it over for about four days and it makes me crazy. And you, you talk about those different personalities, personalities in terms of decision-making. And I have to really pull myself back. Even when we're in a board meeting and people are um, talking about mulling things over, I want to make a decision. I want to make really split second decisions, which is not the, not always the best way to do that, but talk about those two personality types in terms of business and leadership. Yeah, definitely. So one way to get better at decision making is understanding your decision making bias. So it sounds like you kind of on one end of the spectrum is this knee jerk or emotional uh, reaction or response. And that's on this end. And then if you swing to the other end, you might have someone who likes to think about things, mull things over, make a spreadsheet, color code the spreadsheet, talk to 12 people and still not actually do anything. They get into analysis paralysis. And so knowing where you are on the spectrum is step number one. And then number two is saying, okay, what kind of decision am I making? And in my book, I reference, um, you know, if it's an irreversible decision, err on the side of taking more time with it. And if it's reversible, then you might be quicker to action because you can always change that. And I think that's from James Clear. So I want to give credit where credit's due, but that's a, that's a great thing to keep in mind. So what is my decision-making bias? You know, what is my tendency? Be self-aware in that way and then say, okay, what situation am I going to apply this to and try to, and try to match those two things? Well, and you talk about perfect being the enemy of good. Talk, tell mm -hmm. us what that means. Yeah, um, 
I have a healthy streak of perfectionism in me. I think a lot of people do. And like anything else, it's a double-edged sword. It serves, it can serve you very well in a lot of situations to motivate you, make you driven, uh, have high quality results, person of excellence, all these things. On the flip side, it can, it can go too far and become a negative and it can hold you back from getting things done or having good enough be good enough, which for the longest time for me was a cop-out. If I heard good enough, that's you know halfway done, that's just shoddy work, that's low quality, nothing I wanna be associated with. But if you think about it, in its definition is it's good enough, it gets the job done. And so sometimes you need to move the ball forward or put things in play and take action versus uh, making it perfect. And there is a tipping point where you get past the point of diminishing returns. So for instance, if you're going to spend an extra four hours on a project or a task, is, is that change and is that incremental progress in those last four hours worth it? Or is that just, you know, the, the minutia and detail that no one's going to really notice and it's not going to move the needle. So you need to balance yourself of, Hey, I want to do good work, but I don't want to go so far as to uh, wasting time and wasting my energy and preventing action from being taken and preventing progress from being made. And this is, I'm going to move off topic for just a little bit, but this still is a leaders. This is a real dilemma for leaders. I um, learned a hard, you know, I always, it's hard. Um, I mean, one of the, one of the tricks of becoming a leader is learning how to let go of, of the idea of perfection in all, aspects of your business. And I had a coach when I was running a real estate team and I would say, but, but I, you know, I mean, I have two people on my team who could do this, but they can't do it as well as me. And he finally said, funny, two people doing you at 70% actually equals 140%. You have to, you have to figure out at some point that you have to let go of perfection in all areas if you're ever going to get anything done at a high level. I thought that was a really important thing for me to learn was that sometimes you got to let other people. I mean, that's a huge part of being a leader is learning to delegate and not expecting everything to be done exactly the same the same way that you would do it. Do you find that? Do you hear that from your coaching clients? Absolutely. Absolutely. Delegation is a huge, is a huge topic. And what you said, I can do it better, Emily. I hear that all the time. And my response is, yes, you probably can. But the right answer is to have the other person do it for a myriad of reasons. It could be, hey, the task you're talking about, 12 other people could do, and you can only do something else. You can only um, approve the budget or do these performance reviews or make this higher level decision. You shouldn't be spending your time on these on this thing that 12 other people can do. You need to be spending your time on what your uh, position and role allows you to do and only you to do. And a second piece of that is oftentimes people will find a different and or better way to do something than you do. And to early in my career, I would always be defensive and find that threatening when like, oh my gosh, like John does that better than me and I'm his boss. So I should be the best at everything. And now when I get a scenario like that, where, oh, Brian like found a better way to do that. Uh, he's more efficient. That's, you know, more creative. I celebrate that. 
because he's on my team and it's making my team better. Um, and it's of course making him look good, but it's making you know me look good in that sense too. So I find it uh, exciting to to delegate things. Well, back to the book. I, that's so, that's so helpful because that's such a, I mean, it's just like saying no, it's also, it's, it's hard. It's hard for me to say yes to people taking over work that I had done traditionally. And yet I, it's also a great service to them. We just did a podcast with um, somebody who talked about mentors. I mean, she really, we came in thinking we were going to talk about something different and she talked about mentors. And I thought when we don't give up some, when we don't learn to delegate, we tend to not be very good mentors. So. Yeah, that's a great point. And one more thing, cause that just sparked something in me. Uh, delegating something is an opportunity for someone else to shine. You're giving them trust and you're giving them a platform to step up and show what they can do. And oftentimes, people aren't saying, oh, she's just giving me more work. Like, okay, great. I have more on my plate. It's no, she's trusting me with that. I get to stretch myself a little bit and do a new project. And so I think delegation done in that way can be a very positive thing, both for the person for you, for you and for the person that you're delegating to. So I think that's, that's a great point. That's so exciting. We'll talk about having a bias towards just towards done. What do you mean <laughs> yeah. by that? Yeah, so I have a I have a story. So earlier in my career, I remember uh, staying late to work on a presentation, and I of course wanted it to be perfect. And I remember I said I wanted this to be impressively good, and so I was spending hours like manually moving the lines of an org chart. For some reason, the smart art wasn't working or whatever, and I was like moving each little box and line of it. Oh, I've done and, that before. Yes. And it got ah. to like the nth degree bunny to like the like half a pixel. And I wanted it to be perfect. And I probably spent hours. And then I thought, Emily, no one in that meeting is going to be like, who put together this PowerPoint? Like that's a half pixel off. Ah. Um, <laughs> and I was like, you just wasted, you just spent like four hours doing this. And it was nighttime and it was dark and no one else was in the office. And I'm like, I will never be able to get this time back. And so that is a clear cut case of like, have a bias towards done. The PowerPoint is done. The content is there. It, you can tell it's an org chart, whatever. Um, and so it kind of is a pair with don't let uh, perfect or perfection be the enemy of good. It's have a bias toward done. Uh, move the ball forward. Put put things in play. So that story always comes to mind when I, when I talk I about that. I love that. Okay, well, here's one of my favorites that you talk about is protecting the asset. What mm. What's the asset? What does that mean? Protect the asset and the asset is you. And um, this is such a, such a huge topic right now. And it's involving self-care. So it's taking care of yourself, putting yourself in best position to lead, putting yourself in positions to make high quality decisions. And a lot of people retort, and I can hear your listeners say, look, Emily, I have so much to do. And um, so many people are counting on me. And I often hear from business leaders that I work with who have just gotten into a new job oh, I have to work harder now. I have to prove myself. I have whole teams that are counting on me. I have to look good. And I say, yes, you know, you do have to step up um, and you need to put yourself in best position to lead. And let me give you two examples. If you had person one who hasn't slept more than four hours a night in the last six months, who is 
double fisting coffee who is bleary eyed and hasn't seen outside for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, and that's person one. Person two is someone who, you know, works hard, uh, sleeps well, does hobbies, uh, you know, does things that re recharge and rejuvenate them and are well-rounded and vibrant and exuberant and all those things. That's person two. If someone had to make a decision that was going to impact your career, your livelihood, and therefore your family, which person would you like making that call? And most people are like, oh my goodness, like person two, please person two. And of course, that's the answer. And so understand you as a business leader or you as just someone leading yourself or your family or your community, that you need to put yourself in best position to lead. And you need to do the things to take care of yourself so that you can take care of others and so that you can serve them better and be at your best. A lot of times people are trying to do the right thing and they're trying to be at their best, but they're showing up at their worst. And so make sure that you're protecting the asset and the asset is you. And that carries over into your interactions and your service of other people. You know, that's so interesting because long ago I was a single mom and I had when Johanna, um, who's my assistant and my producer, but also my daughter was little, I read, I mean, I mean, I was, and I also had a job as a paralegal, so I was really frazzled, but I read um, a parenting expert called John Rosemont. And John Rosemont is a little controversial because he's kind of old school. Like uh, you don't have to be nice to your kids every day. Um, you just have to teach them how to be, uh, you have to love them and take care of them, but you have to teach them how to be good citizens and how to take care of themselves as adults. And he said, especially to single parents. He said, you have to treat yourself as though you're a distributor. You're the, you're the, you're a distributor of goods. And if your storehouse over here that provides you with all the, you know, you've got a warehouse out there in the country that's getting filled up with product. If that isn't well stocked, then you got nothing else to distribute to the people in your life. And I, you know, I took that to heart at that time because I thought, you know, if I don't have some time of my own, if I don't have some, you know, if I don't get to read a book on occasion, if I don't say no to the laundry, if I don't say no to perfection, which was pretty easy at that point. But I learned at that point that if I was diminished, if my supplies were diminished, then then the way that I dealt with the people in my life was going to be diminished as well. It's a hard thing to learn because we're taught that if you just move faster and move harder and, um, you know, it's just, it's just sort of the Puritan way, just keep working harder and faster and longer. And eventually you'll get the cheese, but yeah. it's not true. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, caffeine and willpower, that was my motto for a long time. And that got me, through so far, but then you kind of hit a brick wall. So caffeine and willpower uh, will get you so far, but not all the way. And when you were talking, it brought up uh, a common objection, which is, Emily, I can't be that selfish. I can't what? be that selfish. Take the time. I'm like, whoa, 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 that's not selfish. You know, you're actually putting, you know, serving other people. Think about an interaction you have with someone who's like, I, I didn't get sleep. I'm super stressed. Like it's very short. They're a little bit cutting remarks and things like this versus someone who's, you know, in, in good spirits and in their element, that, that interaction is much different. Oh, it's so hard when you're managed by somebody who's in that crazy mode. You know, it's, um, 
it's that's so difficult and, and it's not a great way but um i really like the pro tip that you used because you put these pro tips throughout your book and you said some people don't like the term self-care so think instead of it as priming or turbocharging yourself. I think when you say use the word self-care, people think, oh, she thinks I should take a spa day or something. Mm -hmm. It's soft, yeah. 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 So that's um thank you for that reminder. I also I I really liked the chapter on your team because you're anybody who's in leadership is going to have a team of people that they're leading in some way. And um, you talk early, early in that chapter, you talk about attitude versus, um, oh my gosh, aptitude. Aptitude, yeah. Talk about that. What do you mean by sure. that? Sure. So those are, I talk about this for recruiting and then also assessing your existing teams. So these are two buckets. You have aptitude and attitude are the two main buckets that you want to look for. So aptitude that's the hard skills you need for the job. So if you're in finance, you might need a CPA certification. If you're um, a programmer or a coder, you might need to know, you know, C sharp or whatever it is. Attitude are the quote unquote soft skills. And those are things like, um, is, is she a team player? Or when there's a group project, do people wanna work with him or do they cringe when they have to um, work with this person? And so those are the two big buckets. And a lot of the information you're getting in the recruiting and hiring process, and also just managing an existing team, you can divvy up into these two buckets and say, okay, where is this candidate? Where is this team member in these, in these two uh, categories? And it's just a good, way to keep those in mind. You want someone who excels and exceeds in both. That's your top performer. That's, you know, uh, a plus star performer who is high in aptitude and the hard skills and also has a great attitude. And then sometimes you'll have, you know, a, a deficit in one and meeting the threshold in the other. And sometimes you'll have a deficit in both, which is a poor performer or an underperformer who perhaps might need more training or, um, you know, different different things explained to them, um, or they might need to be transitioned into a different department or out of the organization at the worst case scenario. So aptitude and attitude are the two big buckets uh, you can use you can use there. I have a, um, I mean, I, I'm really interested in, I sent you a question and say, you know, if, if you were choosing um, one or the other, um, aptitude, but with more, you know, you've got a, a hotshot who is really, really, really skilled, you know, comes with high recommendations in terms of skills, but has um, not a great attitude. Or you have somebody who's um, has a great attitude, but lacking in skills. What's your, how do you make the choice? I take attitude. That's my preference. I will take a good attitude and a good team player, um, someone who's driven in it to win it, those types of attributes over the hard skills. And I say that because um, I can teach someone hard skills or I can get them training to learn those things. I can't train some of these X factor things. I can't train common sense or being proactive or um, you know, being motivated and driven and self-sufficient. Those are, those are kind of the X factors where if I get that, I will take that in a second and I'll train to the rest. I, well, I tend to agree. We just did a new hire at the, at the foundation and there, there was this real, um, 
you know, when you're, when you're talking to ex- executive director candidates, there are a lot of people who have a lot of skills in, in the nonprofit sector. And, you know, luckily we were able to hire somebody who had exceptional skills, but we interviewed other people that had exceptional skills. And in that, and this is, I mean, I think this is, this is invaluable information for somebody who's out there looking. Um, we ended up making a choice because it was clear that in terms of being a team player and um, just having a, an in it to win it attitude really tipped the skills in their favor. And, and we were right. I mean, that was, we made exactly the right how, right. Um, higher. And yet you, you also at the end of this chapter speak about the complainer. And I'm like, I don't think you can fix complaining. Can you, if you have a complainer? Yeah. I mean, if that's in someone's, makeup, then it's real hard to extract that. But I mean, you can bring up a great point that part of the attitude bucket is just fit. And I mean, team fit or culture fit. And that can be, you know, you could have a perfectly qualified candidate um, and a perfectly good company, and they just might not be the right fit. And that's not a knock on either one. It's just not a good fit. So I love um, the fact that you guys were betting for that and taking that into consideration. I'm going to tell you, I don't know that we were taking it into consideration in the beginning. You know, we were just, uh, we were in a pickle and we were in this place where we really, really needed help. And then it became clear that the hard part of this decision was going to be not who was, who had the qualifications, but, but who, who would be the best fit for an organization that does what we do. And you're right. It had to be, I mean, they had to be in the right seat on the bus, and um, and and you you talk about that too about whether people you know lots of times um, you know you'll hire people and you'll think they're perfect for one spot and and yet you have to figure out. I mean, you you that's a great story that you tell about the woman who was doing the projects for you, and you had to learn her motivation. Talk about that. That's a really cool piece in the book. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So I think um, one decision is, do I bring this person into the company at all or into the team at all? And then what position are they within that group? And so, uh, yeah, I've had numerous examples. I think the one you're thinking of is uh, this person was in an entry-level role and they were doing this kind of data analysis uh, piece. And I thought, oh my gosh, like she's overqualified for that and she'd love a promotion and she'd love you know, me, me to move her over here. And so I got that all sorted out, got it approved by the boss, got the budgets lined up and I went to tell her. And she was like, if you move me to that position, I'm gonna quit. And I was like, what? I was like, what? Like, hold on, I, I was expecting a thank you. And like, oh my gosh, Emily, you're so cool and da da da. And I kind of like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Like, can you tell me why? And throughout the conversation, I learned um, she, she, her parents had died in an accident. She had money that wasn't a concern. She wanted to work on that data analytics project because that's what interested her. And so I assumed that she would want a different position for higher pay. And at the time, that seemed perfectly logical to me. I would be motivated by that. But for her, she was motivated by something else and she came to work for something else. And so that was a huge lesson of mine that don't assume that other people's motivations are the same as yours and you need to check I, in with them. 
that's really that's that was an eye opener for me too because I tend to think everybody everybody's on this ladder everybody wants to go in a specific direction which is up and um I you're right I mean we're told not to assume in life but I didn't you know I didn't think about it in terms of dealing with hires and I I think I've been doing that um with someone. So I really want to, I like the idea. I mean, do you advocate for sitting down with everybody and figuring out what their motivation is if they're on your team? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people will tell you if they ask them, people hold it close to the chest. So I would advocate um, being curious and interested about this and figuring it, figuring this out in the best way you can. Sometimes it's it's as easy as asking someone and they'll tell you kind of, you know, in a one-on-one you know, weekly sit down or just a, a more casual conversation. Um, but just learning about what this job means to them. And sometimes you can ask that direct question, like, what does this job mean to you? Oh, I'm, you know, going to school. I'm studying for this. This is my job for the next four years. And then I want to go be a firefighter or whatever it is. And you're like, okay, that's great. Like, I understand why you're here. If it's, no, I love the mission of this company. Like, I want to learn as much as I can about this industry. I want to become an expert in it. Okay, that's a different trajectory. Good information. And it can go on and on. So it can be, hey, I love working with the people. Um, so the culture is really important to me. And and making sure we have a team culture and a company culture that's uh, as inviting and welcoming and friendly and collaborative as it is today is really important to me. So again, another good thing to keep in mind if those things start to change. And can we take, I want to take just a minute and talk. This, this is um, something that I struggle with as a leader is, um, Figuring out and conveying the culture um, to people. I, I mean, it seems to me, you know, I got, I'm sorry, but when I was in the, in the middle of the workforce, you know, really just making a living, nobody talked about company culture. And now we talk about it all the time. And I just, I think as a leader, there are some things we really need to be aware of and things that we can develop, especially, I mean, I, um, I don't. I have no idea what our demographic is in terms of listeners, but I would suspect that your readers range in age from you know, eighteen to seventy-five, and 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 knowing and creating and then conveying company culture is sometimes hard for people in my generation. Yeah, it's interesting. There is a generation generational element to it for sure. And I think sometimes the pendulum has swung too far. People talk about foosball and like the parties and the games and stuff like this. Um, and that's all well and fine if it's if it's a piece of it. The biggest thing, honestly, um, that goes into culture that I hear over and over are don't micromanage me and I want to feel like the boss or company has my back. And if people have those things, which can come in a number of com- combinations or permutations, people feel like they're working in a in a good culture. I can add a whole bunch more, like allowing people to make mistakes and not having that be a scary thing and encouraging that. We talked about failure before. Um, having a boss that's a servant leader and wants to invest in you and takes the time and energy to get to know you and what you want to do and then help you as best they can to get there. So all of these different elements being um, recognized and rewarded for your efforts. So is my hard work rewarded? Do I see a future with the company? A whole bunch of different things. Happy to go into any of those you'd like. But yes, those are those are the big ones for company culture. I think you could just write a book for, you know, people over 50 who are still um, working at developing the best cultures. But um, I you 
you have, you talk about communication skills as well. Mm. And um, I think we, well, I'm not going to assume. I'm not going to assume. (laughs) Emily says don't assume, so I'm not going to assume. But in my world, I tended to think naively that everybody communicated the same way that I did. I'm very verbal. um, And um, I assume that I'm very clear. And as I said before, I'm, I'm quick to, I make kind of snap judgments and obviously that's not how the entire world works. And you talk about that. Tell the listeners about a little bit about those styles. Yes. So I'm guilty of that assumption too. So I made that, uh, in my career that everyone communicated like I did. And that means they like to receive information the same way I do and they deliver information in the same way I do. And that's just a, that's just a false assumption. Um, and so you, I think you touched on uh, one aspect of that is verbal processors. Um, and they like to talk out loud to think, and they like to s- have a sounding board session with someone and just brainstorm. Um, and they, you know, want to, want to get people's opinions and then they want to think about it and they want to talk to more people. And that's a verbal processor. Um, and then you have internal processors who like to gather data and then think about it by themselves and kind of, uh, simmer on it and then maybe get some more data points and then think about it again and then present their answer and talk about it. And so if you have someone assuming that, hey, I'm a verbal processor, so everyone must be, you could be in a meeting or a seminar and you see a quiet person and you're, you're encouraging them to talk and trying to give them a platform to speak and you think you're being nice and this person's like, stop pressuring me, I'm still thinking about my answer, I'll get you a good one, just let me think about it. Um, and so that's just one example of, uh, of different types of communication. Well, we just did a board retreat and I have 14 people on my board and we invited six people who were on staff because we felt like it was really helpful for them to all, everybody to be bought in. Let's, let's get to the end of the day and know what our trajectory is and what our vision is. And, and I, I'm, I'm telling you, I made this mistake only a week ago today in that, and we have somebody who's on staff who is a very internal thinker. And, you know, I'm the board chair, I'm leading this group, we have a mediator, but I'm like, we haven't heard from you yet. And I call them out. And afterwards, she said, I would prefer that you not do that. And I, and I will speak, I, you know, I will let you know when I'm ready to present, but I've got to think about this stuff. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, I, I just read Emily's book, <laughs> but you do, um, I mean, like, I mean, you say this, we're always learning and getting better, but that was a real direct example. And you, you told the story about somebody that you would debrief, you would, you would sit down and brief mm. and give them every detail. And they were finally like, Emily, no, stop. stop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, too, there was one scenario several years ago now where uh, the CEO was was offsite. And so I would write the weekly all staff email. He would do a summary email every week. And I was in charge of that. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, I get to be in charge. I'm going to give someone kudos, all company kudos, because they did a good job on something. And I was like, I'm being nice. This is what I would like. I did that and not. 30 seconds later, their boss came rip roaring around the corner to my office and said, Emily, why did you do that? And I was like, what did I do? And they basically said, so-and-so hates 
being publicly acknowledged, they don't like that attention. Like people are paying them and saying congratulations and he does not like that. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I would have liked the public praise, but not everyone likes that. So I just embarrassed him. So yeah, we all do it and we just have to learn. What planet are they from if they don't? I don't know, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you, um, I, and I wrote this down because, oh, I, I, I really worked hard. I, and I learned that day that I have to remember to do this, to come into those meetings in judge, in curiosity Mm. instead of in judgment. And, um, just, just to remain curious always. And you talk about that a little bit because you say, don't, don't come into a conversation where you already have their answers in your head. Mm. Did I, am I misphrasing that? No, I think you have it. It's, you know, if you, if you're going into a conversation or you're in a conversation and you're just thinking of what to say next, and you're just figuring out ways to dig your heels into your position and you're not really listening to that person, uh, that's not a conversation. That's kind of like you're giving them time to speak and then you have your mind made up. So um, absolutely, don't go in with with judgment. Try to take away that judgment and bias and instead go in with engaged curiosity. So, hey, I'm engaged, I'm open-minded, I wanna hear all the information, I wanna hear the different perspectives. That doesn't take any away from you. It doesn't take any agency away from you. You might still find yourself in the same position you were at the beginning, but at least you've actually considered and you've heard and thought about different perspectives. And that's um, that's really important. It's, it's important for yourself because you're doing yourself a service and you're getting the information. It also is a good thing for other people. People can feel when you're having a conversation with them where it's, it's a two-way street and you're actually having you know, a conversation and you're listening and you're like, oh my gosh, I never thought of that before. That makes me think like, what do you think about this? Cause that changed my thinking, that changes my thinking here versus someone who's like, mm-hmm, yeah, well, that's still not gonna work. Nope, that's not a good idea. <laughs> so people can feel I've the difference. I've worked with that right? guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think we've all been on the receiving end. So when we yes. have opportunity, when we have opportunities, especially as a leader, especially as in you know a position of power where you don't have to do that, but it's the best thing to do to to really try to take that opportunity and and capitalize on it. Can we talk about doing words like using and versus mm, but? Yeah. And why versus how? Tell tell me about that. Give us some tips Absolutely. on that. So some of these communication tips are, are very small and very tactical and practical. It can be one word in a sentence that can change the meaning or the dynamic or con- connotation of that. And so particularly when giving feedback, the swapping the word but for and can be really helpful. So if you think about someone giving feedback, they say you do this well, that well, that well, but and then they give all the negative feedback. A lot of people will hear that as anything before the but, any word said before the word but, don't count and they cancel out and they'll just focus on what you said afterward. Um, Whereas if you just swap that one word into an and, you do this well, you do that well, you do that well, and I'd like to see kind of more of this or in this direction next time, then it's a complete sentence. And like, okay, like she's taking this in its totality, she's taking a holistic perspective and giving me, um, you know, well-founded, well-rounded feedback, and that's received a little bit better. So, just switching one word can make that message land a bit better to your to your listener or to your audience. 
and why versus how? How? What's that? Yeah. Um, so there's, I think it's what versus uh, there's what versus why and and why. Oh, versus okay. How, but, I'm sorry. But no worries. Why uh, when people are on the receiving end of that, if I go, why did you do that, or how could you do that? It has a different connotation than um, what led to that decision or what led to this um, outcome. So why sometimes goes to the personal aspect. So it's like, oh, my gosh, like I have to defend myself as a person like you're personally attacking me. Or like, how could you be so stupid? Well, I don't know. Um, but instead, what, you know, what happened that's outside of ourselves? So it's like, OK, let's talk about, you know, the events that that transpired to bring us to this. Um, and again, you can hear me kind of using we and us and and detaching it a little bit from a personal attack. So, again, if you're having a conversation and I've had many conversations where, hey, we actually we have an emergency, like a client escalation is happening. Something went wrong. Maybe a server went down or a mistake was made on a report. And so the words you use in those conversations in the moment are really important to get people in the right frame of mind. And you don't want someone trying to triage a crisis when they're panicky and defensive. That's a that's a bad place to be uh, taking action from and making decisions from. You want to get them in a comfortable spot and get them pointing in the direction you want. Similarly, after all is said and done, let's say a client escalation is resolved in the debrief sessions or in the conversation with your team member, perhaps they did make a mistake and perhaps it was on them. You, you don't need to make them feel worse about it by, you know, rubbing it in and saying like, why, how did you let this happen? Or why, why did this, uh, why are you like that? Instead, it's kind of taking it and breaking it down in a more objective way. And, and that allows someone to speak about that in a more objective way as well. So you get to a better answer. You have a better conversation. And is that the same as ask versus tell? Uh, yes, yeah, so that's another another quick tip. So oftentimes we can we can tell someone what to do. So, um, you know, please set up a meeting for two o'clock or I need you to do this right now or I'd like to have this happen. Um, and it comes across as an order or kind of uh, derogatory or condescending. And, you know, people will do that because you're the boss and you're in charge and I have to do what you say. Um, but switching that statement into a question like, hey, any way you can, you know, set something up for us at 2 p.m. Uh, next week? Or, you know, um, are you able to uh, get this report run for me? Just just changing it into a question where both of you know that the answer is going to be yes. Um, and both of you know, <laughs> right. that, like, yes, I'm going to do what you're telling slash asking me to do. But again, how that's received and how it lands and how it makes someone feel can be a lot different. Um, so I've been tired and stressed out and I do emails and I look back and I get like kind of a sharp response back. I'm like, wow, like they were really rude and short. And I look at my email and I'm like, oh my gosh, Emily, like you just were in drill sergeant mode um, rattling out orders. And so I need to be careful, especially when I'm uh, under pressure or feel stressed to make sure I use a question whenever I can, because it's just a, a nicer way to say that. And it doesn't cost me anything. It's not, you know, it takes like two extra seconds to put it in the form of a question. It's not costing me anything, but it's making this dynamic and relationship uh, better. And the quality of the answer I get might be better as well. That's so funny. I, you know, as I have gotten a little wiser, I mean, it's incremental, it's tiny, but 
Um, I did have a, a mentor a, about 10 or 12 years ago who said, if you will just proofread every single email you send out and read it aloud. I thought that was a great tip. I mean, she said, read your emails aloud because, you know, even if you're, and I know that takes extra time. However, I've, I've then had somebody on my team. I taught it to my team and I said, you have to read them aloud because if they sound a little short to you, they're going to sound really short to the person who received them. And so Kurt, in your mind comes across as aggressive to the reader, it seems. And so, um, that's, that's, uh, it's really, some of this is just being cordial. Yeah. And it's funny because one of my clients had an example where he was like, my boss sends me these like certain types of emails in all caps and I get really stressed and I start sweating when these come through. And I was like, Oh, interesting. You know, maybe ask him like, what is, what does he mean? Uh, by that? Is that like a certain type of email or whatnot? And so he did. And the boss was like, oh no, I send all of my emails in caps. Like all oh. of my emails like that are in caps. And I was like, oh, there we go. So he he's not yelling. Over the cap he's, yeah, he's just, he, that's just how he writes emails. But it was good information to share. So yeah, just little, little things that's like hilarious. that. That's hilarious. That's yeah. hilarious. Well, um, there, there is that other chapter and, but you know, it's so intricate. I don't want to go into it, but it's all about hiring and you you provide some really good tips. You provide some scripts, some, you know, what, what do you do after the interview? What do you do? Um, I, I love that. And I wish I had had it before we made this last hire, but I'm going to use it again, but it's a really good template for going through the hiring process with some success. But, um, Emily, if you were, um, I mean, let's talk, say, let's say we've got somebody like me who's always struggling with, um, you know, I always think about what kind of leader do I want to be? What kind of leader do I want to be? I think sometimes it boils down to what sort of leader do people want to be led by? Am I crazy? No, no. That's a good way to approach that question. Um, I think that's a large question. So I'll just I'll just give you some brief, brief things. So one, um, play to your strengths and be authentic. And I know that's like a buzzword, but what I mean by that is don't try to become the type of leader you're not. So a lot of people go leader. I need to be loud and gregarious and get up on stage and be flashy and, and do all these things. And that's, that is one type of leadership. Absolutely. And if that suits your strengths and personalities and inclinations, go do that. But if you're, if that's impersonating someone, and that's trying to be something you're not, then go with a different leadership style. And there's hundreds of, of different ones. Um, I think too, the approach you mentioned, which is, okay, well, you know, what bosses have I had in the past? Which ones have I liked and why? Um, you know, again, that's individual to you, but it's a good starting place. You know, what, what traits and characteristics and interactions did I appreciate and helped me grow? Let me try, I'm now that person to someone else. Let me try to espouse those. And then it's um, taking time to think about what makes a good leader. And that is a big uh, question, but if you take some time, some things might pop up uh, versus just glazing over it or breezing over it. So things like for me, it's adaptability. A a great leader is able to adapt and turn 
change or something unexpected into an opportunity versus just defeat or a struggle. Um, it's things like servant leadership and waking up and saying, how can I help other people be successful and not have it all be all about me? Transparency, decision making, all these different things. So being able to just have a brainstorm and think about what are the traits that I think a good leader should have and either writing those down or just being able to articulate those and think through those out loud is a good uh, is a good exercise to go through. But it's a great question. I'm happy to go into it further, but those are my few quick tips right off the bat. Well, we will talk about this again, um, but I, I, I just, and I wanna say to anybody who's thinking about how to be a great leader, um, pick up Emily's book. I will have a link to it, but also I don't, you, you said you're, your coaching practice was really picking up. Do you have space for anybody else if somebody wants to find you? Uh, at the time of recording, it's getting quite tight, um, but I don't know when this will be aired and so things ebb and flow. So please, please feel free to reach out. Um, I am actually working on a free download for 10 traits of effective leaders. And so by the time this airs, I'm about to, about to publish that live. So you can go to my website and check that out just for um, a thought starter. But And tell uh, folks what your website is. Absolutely. It's nextlevel.coach. So nextlevel, all one word, dot coach. And if you just click the resources tab up top, you can go to the place where you can get the free download. But uh, yeah. Lots of well, Emily, stuff. once again, it's so, I, I could talk to you for another couple of hours. It's so <laughs> helpful. And I, I don't know. Well, I know other people are learning things, but it's really, really helpful to me. So thank you for being here and uh, let's do it again. Absolutely. Bunny, it's always a pleasure. And thank you so much for having me for round two. And I hope we can continue the conversation. Absolutely. That's all we've got today, friends. I want to thank you for joining the Life Saving Gratitude podcast with your host, Bunny Terry. That's me. And my producer and assistant, Johanna Medina. We feel like we're in the business of sharing the stories that save us. And we hope you'll share as well by letting your friends and family know about the podcast. Follow and like us wherever you listed, and please take the time to leave a review. Whether it's a stellar comment or a suggestion, we are open to suggestions all the time. Also, follow us on Instagram at Life Saving Gratitude Pod. You can also follow me personally at Bunny Terry Santa Fe. You can sign up at my website at bunnyterry.com to receive weekly emails about how to become the ultimate gratitude nerd. Thanks so much for checking in.